exploring the healing and culture building practices of embodied anti-racism. This is With Love and Justice for All with Reverend Ogan Holder and Reverend Kelly Isola. Good afternoon or good morning or good evening, whatever time it is where you're watching and listening. I guess not really watching. I say watching because I'm on Zoom um, normally with Reverend Ogan and uh, Reverend Ogan Holder is is on a hiatus or vacation or mental health day or self-care day or Sabbath. How would we like to call that? So he's not here today, but I have a fabulous, wonderful guest who I'm going to introduce in a moment, Derek Weston. He is a food justice activist. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that, but I'm Reverend Kelly Issa and welcome to With Love and Justice for All, where we have conversations around embodied anti-racism, dismantling oppression, and the special challenges that arise as spiritual seekers and uh, and so much more. And so if you would like to join the conversation today, you can call 816-251-3555. That's 816-251-3555 um, to join the conversation live. You can also join us on Facebook or Instagram, and that is at Get Our Holy On. That's our, our um, name, our call sign, our What's I think there's a different word for it, but you know I'm almost old, so I get confused. Um, so <laughs> going to jump right in, and just because Reverend Ogan's not here today doesn't mean it's not fabulous. Because Derek Weston is going to just take us away and and be amazing with food and justice, with love and justice for all, with food and justice for all. Right. So welcome, Derek Weston. Thank you. So glad to be here. Yeah. Let me say, let me tell our listeners a little bit about you, what exactly a food justice activist is. I'm going to give a little bit, but then through the course of our time together, you're going to learn a whole lot more. Uh, Derek is committed not just to securing better meals for everyone, but to dismantling the structures that have exploited workers as well as consumers. Yes, if you are a consumer of food, you have been exploited. Derek has spent the last two decades serving churches and faith-based nonprofits in Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Maryland. He currently manages a community garden on Baltimore's east side and was recently awarded a Louisville Institute Pastoral Study grant to develop a food and faith network. I'm so excited. I've talked with you before, um, but I'm really excited to have you on here today. You know, I slipped up at the beginning and I said with food and justice for all. And then I thought <laughs> it's not really a slip up because that's what we're talking about. Exactly. Exactly. We that's I mean, part of part of justice for all would be food for all. So I think that goes that goes hand in hand. So what do you what does it mean? A food justice activist? <laughs> that's a great that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I mean, what it looks like in practical terms, um, part of it is making sure that people have um, access to good, healthy food. Um, a lot of it is teaching about food systems. Um, one of the things that has been really crucial to my understanding in the last, I would say, five years has been really um, training and encouraging people away from the term food desert and towards the term food apartheid. Um, understanding that deserts are naturally occurring and deserts are actually beautiful things. Um, what we have is a, is a human-made system that puts good food in some neighborhoods and, and not so good food in other neighborhoods um, that makes access to, to quality food harder for, for some um, so a lot of that is a lot of it is education, but then, then there's just kind of the, the on the ground planting of, of 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 vegetables, of food, of putting um, putting things into the ground. And and just this last week, we've we um, as a result of the work that we've been doing this year, we probably uh, we delivered probably around 200 pounds of sweet potatoes in the last couple of weeks to our various feeding partners around the city of Baltimore. So, um, so what is, so that, I, I know this might yeah. be a, a weird question, but no, what does 200 pounds translate to? Um, so it translates into about um, eight, four by 25 rows 
four foot by 25 rows of planted sweet potatoes. Um, it translates into, oh my goodness, probably about, mm, well, actually, I guess it's, it's probably, um, about two to 300 sweet potatoes because they're on average, they're about a pound. Uh, So, um, and one, and one sweet potato, well, I I guess it depends how someone eats, but you know, a sweet potato can be shared between a couple people. Absolutely. And and yeah. the the reason um, we grow sweet potatoes is because every culture does something with them. And so it's 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 one of those things that um, there's there's some cultural understanding of sweet potatoes, no matter where you're from. So ah. uh, and, and 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 it's incredibly nutritious. Um, yes. They're beautiful. And I yes. actually think that's a part of it as well is that uh, particularly one of the varieties that we grew this year was this just brilliant red color. Um, and uh, so they're, they're actually, uh, and they're, and they're really fun to, they're really fun to pull out of the ground. Yeah. <laughs> so we've gotten a lot of young people engaged in that in the, in the last couple of weeks too. And that's just been really fun because it's, it's like digging for treasure. They, I did not realize that just about every culture does something with sweet potatoes. I did not know that. Yep. Yep. That's I love them. And they're 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 wonderfully um, you know, uh for an autoimmune protocol diet, you mm-hmm. can eat sweet potatoes, but not regular white ones right. or rice. Right. Or, you know, they're very different. They're mm-hmm. not like you can't really lump them with potatoes. Well, and and not to get too uh not to get too nerdy here, but they're they're completely Please get nerdy. I'm a nerd. <laughs> I know we have nerd and geek <laughs> listeners. Ogan has his own brand of nerdiness. <laughs> I, know, I know he does. <laughs> um, but but they're 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 two they're two completely different kinds of plants. Um, sweet potatoes are more closely uh, related to morning glories. Um, so you see the vines that come up, and 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 actually at some point, sweet potatoes get these brilliant flowers that that are very similar to morning glories. And potatoes are nightshades, so that means that they're cl- more closely related to tomatoes and peppers. Um, the difference is that it's it's as if we were eating the roots of tomato and pepper plants. Oh, so, okay. That's not yeah. too nerdy. Well, I, I mean, I I could have thrown out some some genus and species names, and I decided not to. Oh, I appreciate that. <laughs> we'll save that for part B. Yeah, there so, we go. Um. Well, and they're seasonal too, aren't they? Or yes. can, yeah, yes, okay. this is the time of year that you should be eating sweet potatoes. Um, this is this is the time of year that they are coming out of the ground. So we 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 planted them in late April, and they they should be harvested in October, uh, going into November. So yes, they are they're seasonal, and so if you're getting them now, hopefully where you are, um, they should be they should be fresh. I absolutely love them. And I have, I have a, a an air fryer. And so Ooh. you can, I also have a little waffler machine. So it's only like four inches round. So, but if you kind of mash it up and, and then waffle it, then you have all these little, you know, you can, and then what I do is I cut it into little strips and throw it in the air fryer and get French fries. That sounds delicious. It is. That's I why like, I do it. I love that idea. I'm going to steal that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, there's some way it's just, it's, there's got to be, you know, kind of go from like cook it part way before throwing it in the air dryer, but there's gotcha. no, not adding anything to it. And with the air fryer, not adding any, you know, extra oil or fats or yeah. anything at all. Yeah, that's great. Um, they're very good. They're also, air fryers are also good to dehydrate them so you can make chips. Um, Sure. Yeah, I'll put sweet potatoes about everywhere, you know, in anything. They're very good. And I also have to say, just as sort of the sidebar to, you know, in every culture is when I moved to uh, uh, out of New York and, and the Northeast and I moved to Phoenix um, and then I moved, you know, I discovered in Phoenix other, you know, um, Lots of other different ways sweet potatoes are used. Um, one just um, for Mexican communities that have moved from Mexico or Central America, Guatemalans and and um, Costa Ricans into the Phoenix area. 
uh, and all the snowbirds that come from somewhere else that come to Phoenix. And then I moved to Missouri, where most people are sort of almost they do or kind of fall under the southern thing. And mm-hmm. then I got a real introduction to probably my least favorite way to have sweet potatoes, which is the marshmallows. And oh, yeah, yeah, I can't. Not a, not a fan. No. A fan. I'm like, wait, you're ruining a perfectly good piece of food. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, the 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 midwestern tendency to casserole everything is uh yes. <laughs> is, yes. is slightly problematic which it is it is problematic and it's also very cultural in some ways i think very cultural um, very cultural so which brings mm-hmm. me back to the what you said about food desert and food apartheid mm-hmm. can you say a little bit more about that because it's not i've heard this before yeah i've I've mentioned it to people before but you're the food activist (laughs) so um this actually came from uh this term came from uh another food activist karen washington who started an organization called the black urban growers or bugs and um she she has uh she's a phenomenal speaker and she's just been a she's been a, a real leading force and um, particularly Black people, but pe- all people of color, to really think about their urban spaces and and what the food systems look like in their urban spaces. And she talks about um, she talks about the system of foods, um, the the fast food, the processed food, the frozen food that is what's most accessible. Uh, particularly in urban, mostly mostly black uh, and brown communities, that um, the ability to get to a farmer's market, the ability to, um, even if you have access to grocery stores, sometimes having um, the the leftover produce, the old produce in those grocery stores, um, that that that's that's the situation of a lot of our cities, and that's certainly what what Baltimore looks like, mm-hmm. um, and just kind of as a as a again, kind of just kind of stepping back here, um, food desert, and Karen Washington makes this point, food desert is an outsider term. And it's actually only been used since 1996. And it was used by a researcher. It was used by a researcher to to um, give description to a situation where, where healthy food was not accessible. Now, I, I wholeheartedly believe that it was a researcher uh, with good intentions and who was trying to do good work. Um, but I think you, it's important to let communities define what's happening within them. And when you ask community, when you ask community leaders and ask community activists, what resonates more strongly with what you're seeing, food apartheid makes a whole lot more sense. And it, and it resonates with all of the other ways that access has been um limited or or eliminated for people of color and communities or denied or or denied or just outright denied yeah yeah i uh you know it you said you know believe wholeheartedly in the intention and you'll hear if if you ever anyone if you listen to ogan and i you know repeatedly we I don't know how often but we say we talk about intent and impact Mm -hmm. and how much white body supremacy cultural norm is around the intention so of course people are they're good-hearted and compassionate and giving and caring and that's the intention like wanting to continue to be that and needing to not abandon that but the and the impact can we hear what that language is saying food desert you know and someone pausing to to kind of go yeah a desert is naturally occurring and it's also uh, deserts arise because we've destroyed other climates. So right, while right. it's naturally, naturally, quote unquote, occurring, it's also a, a function of destroying other systems or other, you know, up destroying or upsetting or making an imbalance in the, in the system. Yeah. Um, and in that way, is it, in that way, it fits, but I, I, I think right. we have to be, um, you know, I, I think we have to be careful with language. I think we have to be yep. smart with language. Yep. Um, and and the other the other thing about 
<laughs> the other thing about food apartheid is that usually the first time people hear it, it shocks them. And yes. sometimes and sometimes people need that. <laughs> well, that's what that's what for me, uh, that's what white bodies need is a is is the shock is the like, wait, what? Because the minute you hear apartheid, you think you know, black and white, you think racism, you think, and it's like, well, hello. So, you know, while, you know, desert is, you know, is naturally occurring and, and sometimes is a function of, uh, you know, the interrupting the system or, Mm -hmm. or just destroying the system. It's still apartheid though. Yeah. Still. um, And and desert is, is kind of value neutral. Whereas, whereas apartheid you're making, a a definite judgment on a system yes and choosing you know how to keep it separate and and choices are being made by um workers and or you know management or owners of land or whomever is you know uh choices are being made that create the the disparity that create the apartheid that that exploit workers as well as the consumers Yes, absolutely. And so uh, the whole, there are injustices at every level of right. the food system. So what does, um, so, you know, I read that and I just said it again about dismantling the structures that have exploited workers, which I think um, some, I think most people have, and, and we can talk about that too, but mo- mm-hmm. I think most people have some vague idea of what an exploited worker, you know, what the kind of, in some ways what that looks like um but exploited consumers yeah Oof. um <laughs> where do we start with that um i just the reason i ask is i don't think most people consumers would think of themselves as being exploited yeah um, um and and it starts with uh you know I, i've been watching i've been watching this wonderful series that i will i will recommend to folks called uh, the next thing you eat, and it's um, hosted by David Chang, who is a, a kind of a celebrity chef, but um, but really thoughtful. Um, and they the they did a wonderful episode on breakfast, and kind of the idea of how we've gotten into our minds what is and what is not breakfast food, and how it's all marketing, and how all of it, and it's marketing that's that starts and targets our kids the fact that uh there are there are jingles in my head from when i was six for for frosted flakes for fruit loops for frosted mini wheat you know like the fact and and then and that all of them were a part of a balanced breakfast and then they show you a picture of this is what a balanced breakfast looks like uh there's the cereal (laughs) which was all sugar the cereal and then there's a banana and then there's orange juice and then there's milk and 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 milk is 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 a great uh example of the fact that the the u.s dairy association poured tons of money into advertising and marketing the health benefits of milk and now we're starting to you know, look at some of that stuff and go, okay, not all those claims were true. Um, uh, a lot of things were pushed as healthy. Um, you remember uh, a few decades ago, it was the incredible edible egg that all of a sudden they were pushing eggs on us and yeah. uh, then then got milk. Milk came back around. Right, and, right. And, and so I, 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 a big part of it is... Um, what Michael Pollan calls nutritionalism that we have that a lot of the exploitation comes from claims of health. Um, mm-hmm. Usually when foods make claims on our health um, claims of their healthiness, we should be suspicious. We should be wary. Um, we should be doing our due diligence because the the healthiest foods don't actually have a place where they can where you can write a health claim on them. So, it's, uh, wait, say that again. <laughs> health- the health the, the healthiest foods don't actually have a place where you can write a health claim on them. Okay. Um, like it's really hard to write how healthy a carrot is on the right. carrot. Right. 
Right. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, that way we're, we're, we're all being manipulated by, by, um, and it's, and what's, what's the, the huge irony of all of it is that with our intense focus on, on nutritionalism and, and um, nutritional facts being, again, only being required since the nineties um, to be actually listed on the food, but um we've gotten less healthy. Yeah. As a nation, we've gotten less healthy. We've gotten more hypertension. We've gotten more obesity. We've gotten more type two diabetes. We've gotten more diet related illnesses and and starting younger and starting younger. And, and so the, the health claims that the food industry uh, continues to make um, is often really designed to serve there's usually a lot of money involved in them getting to make the health claims that they make um and we should be interrogating that system wow yeah my my um my mother always uh held that the more colorful your meal was the healthier it was I, I think that's I think there's some there's some truth to that and uh, Michael Not Pollan, artificial food color and color <laughs> yeah 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 in more natural color I, yes, I, yes. I I agree with that and and you know Michael Pollan and others have said this you know the idea that you should you should shop the perimeter of the grocery uh-huh. store uh-huh. you know the idea that like what's in the center of the grocery store is processed and ultra processed yeah. yeah. and what's on the outside of and there's logic here. What's on the outside, uh, what's on the perimeter of the store is stuff that rots. And therefore, it, it has to be brought in and taken out as quickly as possible. That's why it's on the perimeter. That's why it's on the perimeters of the store. And so it has access to entryways. And, right. and uh, you know, he, he kind of goes to, to the, the conclusion, and I, I kind of agree with this, that, like, usually the faster something rots, the more nutritious it is okay then and like that's that's really um you know i i remember when um i don't actually remember the film itself that much uh supersize me the documentary of the guy who ate mcdonald's for 30 days yeah i didn't watch it but i i heard about it I, i i watched it but i but what i actually remember most of it is not the film itself but there's a there's a bonus scene uh, on the DVD, you know, back in the days of DVDs, um, <laughs> where he puts um, he puts a hamburger under a bell jar from McDonald's and a oh, hamburger God. like from a, from just like a your local hamburger stand, you know, um, and you know after a couple of weeks the hamburger stand uh, hamburger is moldy and the bread's moldy and the meat's starting to look rancid and the McDonald's yeah. burger is intact. Okay. And he does the same thing with like, here's some freshly cut French fries and here's some McDonald's French fries. And he puts them under a bell jar. Let's a couple of weeks again, McDonald's French fries, totally intact, normal French fries, moldy, rotten, gross. And it's like that lack of breakdown is happening in your stomach (laughs) and that's not good (laughs) the 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 as you said the the um what did you say the quicker it rocks the healthier it is for you yeah 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 all all of that i know that sounds you know so everybody rush out and get food that's going to rot quickly basically (laughs) and and that's that's the problem is that we have we have decided that as a culture we have decided that convenience yes. is more important for us than even even if we're looking and shopping for health claims on our food nothing trumps what we eat more uh, the decisions that we make uh, around our food more than convenience yeah and that's that's just the byproduct of the ways that we live and so, yes, I might know that, um, you know, if I buy fresh spinach, uh, you know, it's, it's, I've got to use it in the next couple of days. 
or I could buy, you know, frozen spinach and it can last a little bit longer, might even be close to some of the same nutritional value, but, or, or I can buy this boxed thing that says it has spinach yeah. and a whole bunch of other artificial flavors that I can't pronounce. And that's going to be on my shelf forever. Yeah. Or and, in a can. Or in a can forever. And like, I don't have to think about it. Um, and that's not good. We've gotten a little lazy with our food. We've gotten very lazy with our food. Okay. Yeah. I gotten... said that a little. I, like, I agree with you. I just don't know how far I should go. That, with was, it. that was very polite of you. I think we've gotten yeah. very lazy with our food. And, um, you know, we we spend less of our income and less of our time on food and food preparation than any people in history. Wow. I think, so I gotta, I gotta have you hold that thought cause we're about yeah, to do a break yeah, and okay. that's a good place to pick up when we come back. This is Reverend Kelly Isla with love and justice for all. And we'll be back after a break. listening to with love and justice for all with reverend ogan holder and reverend kelly isola welcome back from our break this is reverend kelly isola reverend ogan holder is uh taking a self-care day a sabbatical day a rest day a restore and repair and holiday he's taking the day off and i get to have uh Unfettered access online to a wonderful guest, Derek Weston, who is a food justice activist. And before we went to break, you said, and uh, I had to pause you because it was such a huge statement and needed some unpacking, that we spend, we as humans, we spend less money and time on food or food preparation than ever before in history. Yeah, yeah, at at. At no point in history has access to food been as cheap and easy as it is now. Um, and I think that that has actually really hurt us, that we're not thinking about food as much. We're not um, valuing food as much because we spend, because food, you know, I, I've got four kids. And so like, our grocery bills are still, you know, <laughs> we, we have big grocery bills, but just in terms of, of percentage of our income, it's so much smaller than what it has been at any other point in history that like the pursuit of food, that um, food was part of culture, food was a part of life, uh, rituals were built around food, holidays were built around food. Uh, the ebb and flow of life. I mean, we're we, we're all we're all complaining about we we lots of us were complaining about, you know, uh, uh, daylight savings time and like how we we rearranged our time because of of um, farming and the need for sunlight and agricultural practices. Um, but we we don't put the thought, we don't put the resources into food because we we have an abundance of it we have uh we have an abundance of food and food-like substances that are okay Okay, this is a sidebar i got a bookmark because i'm like wait a minute we have an abundance of food so why are so many people hungry because of the food-like substances um which are um uh, and again, it's about access, right? It's okay. it's about it's about the fact that you can go to make uh, uh, poverty looks different in in our country, and it looks different in in twenty first century because you can go to McDonald's and get it for a dollar, get a McDonald's cheeseburger, and um, for another dollar get fries, and for another dollar get a. a uh, soda that's filled with, you know, um, 
high fructose corn syrup. And what you've done is you've spent $3 and you have filled your body with fat, salt, sugar. And that's, that's what, um, that's what a lot of people in our country are doing. Um, and, and so the access to healthy food, the access to, you know, like are people, are, are, do we have a situation now where people have zero access to any food at all? No, we don't have that. We really don't have that. What we have mostly is people not having access to healthy food, not having access to um, a lot of times not having access to culturally appropriate food. Um, a lot apart- of- which is hence the word apartheid. That's, and, and again, the, the fact that in neighborhoods in Baltimore, like not too far from where I am, where you, you can go, um, you can find a, a, a liquor store, you can find a McDonald's, you can find uh, maybe a dollar store that'll be filled with ultra processed foods. Yeah. But then, but, but in that same radius, there's nowhere where you can get produce. There's nowhere where you can get fresh meat. Um, that's, that's a part of the apartheid system. That's so how, how, system. how does that happen or how did that happen or what? Um, so it, it, it happened along the same lines. Um, if you think about it uh, of, um, sort of the modern way that it's happened in the last hundred years is it's, it's happened along the same lines that we've gotten redlining uh, the same lines where we got white flight. Um, white flight is really a big part of this because uh, people move to the suburbs and you could then as a store owner say, Oh, I can go and get a big lot and have a store in the suburbs have a lot more parking and not have to deal with city issues, quote unquote, the urban issues. Um, and that became, that became the move of a lot of businesses out of the city as white people were leaving the cities. And, and that's where you then leave behind the liquor stores. You leave behind the fast food restaurants. You leave behind the corner stores and the highly processed foods. Um, and that's, you know, that's been, um, that's been the way that it's been set up for, you know, at least the fifties. And, and uh, so it, it's actually, it sounds analogous to the draining the pool. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're, you're, you're seeing, you're seeing a, a drain of resources from our, from our urban centers, um, that's tax base, that's people, that's all kinds of uh, conveniences. And, and the fact that those people who went to suburbs were able to say that there was a certain quality of food that they expected to spend their money on. Um, and grocers kind of agreed to it. Grocers kind of and, and of and of course agree to it because it was easier to make money because it was you could have a again you could have a bigger parking lot you could not have to worry about things like security you to the extent that you might have to in an urban center um, you probably are paying lower taxes um, all of those sorts of things that then kind of reinforce the idea that good food is only accessible to certain people. Mm. So as a food justice activist, it's um, you're working towards, you know, having it, having healthy food accessible anywhere and everywhere. Yeah. And I think one of the things that um, for me, the, the, what I see that's happening in food justice movements is people moving to these really hyper-local food systems, saying that we can grow food in our neighborhoods. We can grow food in our communities. We can raise chickens in our communities. We can, we can do a lot of things in our communities. And, and it's 
it's better for us, it's better for the planet if food isn't traveling thousands of miles to get to us. It is better all the way around. We're, we're eating healthier if we're eating more locally. We're eating more environmentally friendly if we're eating more locally. Um, we, are, we are keeping dollars in the communities that can use them to, um, to uh, uh, be paying taxes for our public schools and creating jobs for people in those urban centers. Um, and doing job training a lot of I mean a lot of the urban farms and urban gardens I see nowadays are adding job training components to uh, their growing because um, even if you're not planning on going into an agricultural field there's so there's just so many good work skills that you can develop by working on an urban garden or an, in an urban farm and so um, I really see that what the activism that's happening now is is the creation of these smaller hyper local food systems and i think that's a really exciting place for us to be i think too it's um uh what i think about and what what i keep you know seeing and having to remind um people or or continue in you know the my work and ogan and i together is that if you're is connecting the dots for people. Yeah. Like, like for me, uh, where I live is, you know, I, I tell people it's, I moved here from Phoenix. I'm in Missouri area and it's pretty creamy white where mm-hmm. I live. And uh, so I, you know, like ha- connecting the dots for where, somewhere where I live, suburbia, um, what is, what, why should I care about, you know, 30 miles away in the middle of Kansas city where there's not like, how does that impact? Not that I don't care, but like Mm -hmm. connecting the dots for people of that. It's not. So we're studying the book zero, um, the sum of us S U M by Heather McGee, and that it's not a zero sum game Mm -hmm. Um, that if, uh, but that's the paradigm we're operating in that, that, and I kind of flip that, like, how does that impact me? Like yeah. being a food justice activist somewhere 20 miles away, 50 miles away, 100 miles away. Like, how does my being involved impact my world out here in suburbia where I'm good? Yeah, I, I mean, that's a that's that's the question, right? Is is how do you how do you make people think about that? And you know, one of the things I would say is we all pay when people use the emergency room as their first point of contact for, for health. Yep. Um, and that's happening when, when you have increasing rates of hypertension and when you have uh, increasing rates of heart disease and type 2 diabetes. That is happening more often that people are engaging the system of health. Uh, their first engagement of the healthcare system is in the emergency room. We all pay for that. Um, secondly, you should care because, um, I mean, you should care about people, but. Yeah, <laughs> human and we should care, or, period. But let's, right. but, let's, but let's just say you don't. Besides um, the <laughs> obvious one. <laughs> But but again, I, we should all care about the the distances that our food is traveling, because one of the primary pol- sources of pollution in this country is the transportation required mm-hmm. to move produce from California to Missouri and to to Baltimore, mm-hmm. and 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 the fact that we are we are putting so much carbon into the air. Uh, so that we can have a strawberry year round so that I can have a pineapple in Baltimore so that we can have bananas in, in Maine. Like we are, we are putting so much carbon into the air so that we can, we can eat what we want when we want. And that's, that's just not sustainable. Um, So that's a reason we should care. Um, And I, you know, I I would say that um, you should care because um, it's good to keep 
money in your communities. Um, and, and there's actually ways that um, suburban money going to urban farms and urban growers is in some ways an act of justice. Um, it is in, it is a teeny tiny bit of like reparation. It is a teeny tiny bit of, of, of being able to acknowledge levels of privilege and being able to acknowledge like, yeah, I can pay the farmer market price because I have the means to do so. Um, And, and I would rather that money go into a community where, where that, that dollar is going to stretch a lot farther and that dollar is going to mean a whole lot more than the dollar that's going to Tyson or the dollar that's going to some branch of Monsanto, Um, you know, like in ConAgra or whatever, like it's, it's those kinds of things that we should be thinking about. Oh, it builds a whole community. Just like when people, you know, when their income is raised, they spend more money. Right. So it's this, this generative process that's, you know, you know, the life giving, you know, absolutely. Um, back into the community. <clears throat> I also was, as you were talking, I was thinking about like, why should I care? Is that we also, you know, I said when we, um, you know, in opening the show that we we also try to like, what does this have to do with spiritual seekers? And what does this have to do with, you know, um, um, you know, living our, our tagline is let's get our holy on. So <laughs> what does this have to do with living our holiest self? And, yeah. and as a, you know, I, I just, I was saying, as you were talking, I'm like the number of churches that are in suburban, I mean, you can, you can, for all, you know, (laughs) lots of suburban areas aren't necessarily very big, but man, you can drive down a road and go by five churches in a few miles, (laughs) all different denominations. But um, so there's a, there's a place like, okay, a, a spiritual community or spiritual seekers, like, how do we connect those? And, and has it been a spiritual practice for you or, 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 you know, impacted your, your spirituality? Uh, Immensely, immensely. In fact, it it started gardening for me started as a, uh, primarily as sort of a self-care and spiritual practice. Um, It was a thing that literally and, and metaphorically grounded me that there's something that happens when you have your hands in the dirt when you watch something go from seed to table that um, is, is restorative, that reconnects you to cycles of life, that reconnects you to the natural rhythms of, of, of the seasons and of the world. And, and that's a good and healthy thing. Um, but mm-hmm. connecting to that larger issue of, of sort of the larger spiritual community um, you know, you might be in a suburb with those five churches of five different denominations and you pass them in your suburb and all of them have lawns. Yes. And wouldn't it be great if all of them had raised beds filled with vegetables that could either stay in their communities or go into communities that need vegetables? That's one of the things that I, you know, that I, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a, um, it's a drum I will continue to beat um, that lawns are, are um, my friend of mine said like lawns are, are the mascot of white supremacy Um, that lawns, lawns are, lawns are, you know, the American attempt to recreate the European estate. And, and that we each want to have our own little European estate. Uh, but it would have never occurred to um, particularly uh, a lot of the founders of this country that that land would be used for non-agricultural purposes and just be decorative. Um, we, we spend... Um, the number one agricultural product in this country is lawns. Um, we spend more 
on lawns than any other agricultural product in this country. Wow. That's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous because you can't eat lawns. No. And if you think about just like, a, as, lawns are just a giant suck zone. Yes, they are. They are a giant suck of resources. They're yeah. a giant suck of space. They are often untouched and they often communicate untouchability. Like, yes. as, and as a church, is untouchability the thing that you want to communicate? As a spiritual community, is like, here's the space where you're not allowed to go. Is that the message you're sending? And, and I, and whereas, Gardens are welcoming and gardens are, are inviting and gardens are invitational and gardens, gardens say something about the accessibility of, and, and the desire to access um, that a faith community might be needing to project to the community that surrounds it. Um, and when you said, I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah, you, go ahead. Uh, you know, when, when you said that lawns were the mascot for white privilege, um, I, I hadn't heard that before. So, yeah. one, thank you. So now I have more, more things to um, disturb my white friends about. <laughs> I'm okay with. Uh, and I realized I started me thinking about when I lived in Phoenix. Um, and it made me crazy when people were watering their lawns. I'm like, we're in a desert it's called zero escape. <laughs> like, can we not go with, with what naturally grows here? Yes. Right. Yes. That's what I, that's what yes. I push. And then it takes me the next step, not just what naturally grows here, but also that that's, that it connects us to the land, which is connects us to culture. So to yes. say like, you know, the lawns are mascot of, of white, you know, white privilege, there's no culture in that. Correct. Right. So let's come back to, so what is, and you said at the very opening, like with the whole sweet potatoes, Mm -hmm. right. That, that they're every culture. So now come back to the, you know, the, the raised beds or, you know, connecting the, these, you know, urban gardens and connecting, you know, the food to culture. Um, You know, we have about five minutes left. Yeah. I don't want to lose that piece. Yes, it's so important. It's it's so important because I, I've been teaching this class on food and race, um, and I've done it with a handful of churches now in the last year, and it's been so impactful um, because for for a, a number of reasons. One is being unable to understand that the white colonialist who came to this country would not have been able to eat without the agricultural genius of the West Africans that they enslaved um, or the agricultural genius of the indigenous people they displaced. So that's, that's one thing. Two is that in sort of the creation of the American normalcy culture, we have pushed out people's ethnic foods. We have pushed out people's foods that have cultural and historical significance to them. And one of the ways that you regain access to your cultural heritage that has been denied you, and this is very true for people of color, uh, very true for Black people, very true for Indigenous people, um, you see for Indigenous, our Indigenous brothers and sisters do this so well, seed saving is such a huge part of their culture and the way they preserve their culture to be able to grow the things that their ancestors grew. Um, and we're seeing in black communities now this idea that like, um, you know, that we, we're, we're, we're growing okra in, in our community garden. We're growing collard greens in our community garden on top of the sweet potatoes. And like, we're trying to get from elders, and this is really important, like, tell us the recipes that you grew up with so that we don't lose them, um, part of the classes I teach is about this idea of soul food and like um, the idea that soul food was inferior because it was slave food. Even though when you look at what are the things that nutritionists are telling us that we should be eating, it's, it's things like leafy greens. It's things like sweet potatoes. It's things that are part of a soul food diet. Um, 
food connects us to heritage and so, Kelly sent me this wonderful article before we got, we got started about uh, this Indonesian woman talking about the ways that food connected her to her culture. And like, I think that is, that is so true for all of us that, that food reconnects us to lost heritage. It reconnects us to lost stories. It reconnects us to, um, the, the story, and particularly for African-Americans, the stories of the struggle of what it took to survive in this country during enslavement. Um, you know, uh, there's a lot that can be said there. Um, but, I, you know, I think we can't lose the cultural part of food and yeah. we can't lose the celebratory parts of food. Right. That these, and they often go hand in hand, but but we we can't lose you know food can't just be fuel we're not we're not a we're not a car right, right. you know like i don't i don't need to i don't need to gas up in the morning like i i i should be eating things that connect me to my sense of the divine to my neighbor and to my history and my stories which is which uh, there's also some element of truth in that even as a like i have a lineage yes absolutely you know? And, and, you know, part a chunk of it is a huge chunk of it is Italian and people think Italian and they think pasta, you know, or pizza. And I'm like, no. And, and there's a whole lot more. Um, But even claim reclaiming that uh, is, you know, and, and healing this, like for me, because if people have seen me, you know, I'm overweight but healing my own relationship to food and there's nothing wrong with being a foodie. Right. But it's healing that relationship of, and learning to, this is part of a spiritual practice for me is listening to the body. Absolutely. And and if we really learn to listen, it doesn't want all that crap, the fat, the sugar, you know, but it does crave. and, And very quickly, just to, to my white brothers and sisters that like, part of what white supremacy has also done is stolen your heritage and boiled you all down into white yes. instead of being able to celebrate the, the cuisines of your origin in ways that make, that makes sense. So, yeah. um, uh, you know, that's, that's, a that too is a loss. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you. We're, we're at time. Um, I just thank you, Derek. Um, we've been talking about, uh, this is Love and Justice for All, and we've been talking with Derek Weston, um, food justice activist. Um, and go out, each of us, and be a food justice activist. Eat well, be healthy, be safe. Thank you, Derek. Thanks for having me.